Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place, and we ask right now you'd speak very deeply to our hearts and to our minds. God, as we look at Easter, Lord, I pray that we would rediscover, reimagine what it was like to experience the tragedy and the triumph that Easter represents for all of us, Lord. Thank you for your presence, your spirit, which is here. I pray, God, that you would create something new in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. If you're visiting with us, we want to say welcome to you. We are starting a brand new series uh, this week that we are going to kick off, but let me just say something about last Sunday real quick here, and I'm going to edit this out of the uh, podcast that we normally have. Um, last Sunday was amazing. Like, honestly, like uh, Sal and I were at the front here, and we kept saying it's the line that never ends. We, uh, and I want to say thank you to, like, to everyone who came forward for prayer, uh, to Talia and the worship team who did a marathon worship session, and uh, to everyone clean up. But honestly, here was what really struck me the most. Um, the majority of people who came for the front for prayer, it was for someone else. They came forward saying, I, I would like prayer for this individual in my life who doesn't know Jesus. And that spoke volumes to me because at the end of the day, what, whatever we are as uh, Christ followers, whatever we are in our faith, um, is so amazing to see a community that says, you know what, we just want others to experience what we've experienced. We want others to know what we know as well. And so um, I just want, for those of you who came forward for prayer, I have been praying for the request. For those who remember, just bring them to the Lord this entire week. And that uh, I hope that for those of you who were um, asking for requests, whether it's healing or whether it's uh, for other people, continue to pray into that. Don't just don't let it go just for the Sunday morning. And uh, one of the things we talked about as, as, as elders was that there is this um, desire for more time for uh, prayer and for worship, for intimacy. And we want to kind of we want to kind of actually shift some things in church so we are able to create that atmosphere to uh, provide that opportunity. So we are going to be announcing some things in the future for uh, for that. Okay, that's it. So this morning, we are going to start a new series, uh, which is going to lead us into Easter. And again, as, as, uh, as many of you know, as I said before, pastors can kind of get frustrated with Easter a little bit. Like, how am I going to say anything about Easter that you already haven't heard or haven't already experienced? But I think this morning that, uh, yeah, I think I may have done it. We'll see. Um, okay, so the series is called Witness. And this morning, uh, the subtitle is A Tale of Two Marthas. Um, before we kind of jump into that, let's take a look at this quote by a guy named H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells says this. I'm a historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. And I think it's absolutely true, right? This, this Jesus person, and whatever path of faith, or if you're not even someone who believes, or just, you just kind of wanted and thinking there'd be a movie this morning, um, where, wherever you are in your journey, Jesus is somebody who is pivotal. He's controversial. He is at the very center of all of history, and that's absolutely correct. But the thing that's frustrating about Jesus, if I can use that term in, in its proper context, is that we don't really know uh, a lot about who he was as an individual. Like, we don't know his hobbies. We don't know what he looked like. Was he bald? Was he overweight? Uh, what did he, like, you know, was he rocking the mullet? I, like, I don't, like we, don't, we don't know what Jesus looked like. And the thing is, though, to, to, the, to the gospel writers, that wasn't what was important to them. Now, we have a, a lot about Jesus' teaching, his life. We have extra-biblical uh, um, 
uh, accounts, like from Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Josephus. So we know a lot about Jesus, but some of the things that we as North Americans or Western culture would like to know about Jesus, we, we don't quite know. Um, and so what H.E. Wells is saying here is kind of like, how do we kind of really understand and wrap our minds around Jesus? For uh, many of you know, I've been a... Um, a fan of Sherlock Holmes before it was cool, before the Cumberbatch days. I, I as a kid, love, uh, I love murder mysteries. I love uh, that whole idea of how the brain works and, and solving puzzles. And uh, uh, there's this one quote from uh, one of the, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, uh, fictional writings on, on, uh, on uh, Sherlock called Scandal of Bohemia. And Sherlock is having a conversation with Watson, and he's trying to explain to Watson how exactly he does what he does. And this is what he says. He says, you see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. For example, you have frequently seen the steps which lead up from the hall to this room. Frequently, Watson replied. How often? Well, some hundreds of times. Then how many are there? How many? I don't know. So what, what's Sherlock saying to Watson? He says, you've walked up to this room hundreds of times. Do you know how many steps you've taken to get here? And Watson's like, why would I know that? Now look at his response. Quite so. You have not observed and yet you have seen. That is just my point. Now I know that there are 17 steps because I have both seen and observed. What I love about what, how Sherlock and how Sir Arthur Conan Doyle kind of envisioned this fictional character called Sherlock, although he wasn't really fictional, but that's a whole other conversation, um, is this guy didn't just see the world, but he observed it and understood it. This series that we're going to kind of jump into, it wants to look at Jesus. We have seen Jesus, but have we really understood him? Have we really observed him? Have we really kind of wrapped our mind around who Jesus was? And that's really why I called this series Witness. It's because we need to bear witness to Easter, but in a way that's a little different. In John chapter 11, there's kind of an extraordinary verse that uh, you don't hear mentioned about a lot. But in John chapter 11, verse 5, it says this about Jesus. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. We know about Jesus through Mary and Joseph, his parents. We know of Jesus through his disciples. We know of Jesus through the people who didn't like him, the the religious leaders, the Romans. We even know Jesus through some of the curious people like, well, who are you? But we've never really asked ourselves, how did Jesus' friends think of him? How did Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, these three individuals that pop up in the Gospels a couple of times, how did they see Jesus? Well, I would propose to you this morning, as I want to uh, look over the next three weeks, or actually not three weeks, three teachings on this, is that these individuals had a very unique perspective of Jesus. And how they saw Jesus actually revealed a little bit of the Easter story for us. And it's interesting to say that, you know, Jesus loved these three individuals. And, of course, I think it's easy to say that, well, Jesus loved everybody. Well, yes, but these three, for some reason, had a very unique relationship with Jesus. And how they approached him in the couple of times they've encountered him that that is recorded, it says a lot about Jesus. We actually don't know how Jesus knew them. Facebook friends, do they, you know, do they, we, we don't know how they encountered it, but we do know that this relationship was there and that Jesus uh, popped in on occasion for this. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 10. We are going to be um, sitting there for this morning and look at this idea. And Luke chapter 10, again, is not a typical Easter uh, chapter, but you'll understand where I'm going with this. Let's talk a little bit about these three. We know little about the background of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They may have been well-to-do orphans who had management of their own lives, since there is no mention of their parents. Moreover, the eldest of the three, Martha, appeared to be in control of the household. 
So commentators have said, okay, who are these three and how do they exactly exist? And people have kind of put different theories together. One that I think makes the most sense, actually, is that Martha was a wealthy widow who took care of her younger siblings. So whenever we hear Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, there's no mention of parents or spouses. So that leads us to kind of go, well, in a first century Roman Jewish culture, how did a woman kind of oversee a household? And again, without getting into too many specifics, it was difficult. But one of the most obvious reason, uh, answers for that is that uh, Martha was married at one point in time and that her spouse probably passed away, leaving in control of the house, for which, again, within the culture context, makes absolute sense. And we know they're wealthy, and we'll see why uh, through this morning, but also next week uh, on Friday, Good Friday as well, too. So that kind of lays a foundation of who these people were and their relationship with Jesus. Well, in Luke chapter 10, we see one of the first um, uh, accounts of them uh, in a very famous passage. In Luke chapter 10, verse 38, it says this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Again, very important, right? Whose home is it? Martha. Not Martha's husband, not Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. It was Martha's home. Okay, so we know that Martha kind of oversaw her home and kind of gave uh, leadership in her home, which, again, makes complete sense. So this is the first time these three are kind of mentioned to us in in, uh, Jesus' ministry. And now uh, look what the next verse says. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. I'm not going to unpack this verse tell uh, Good Friday. Good Friday is, is Mary's story uh, more closely. But what's important here is that um, whoever Mary was, she had gotten to the very front to sit at Jesus' feet to hear him. Now, I love this next passage because this is the one that I relate to the most, and I'll explain to you in a second. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, as many of you know, I have five older sisters, and one of them is here to kind of verify everything that I'm saying to you. When we have family gatherings, right, our sisters, my sisters will get together, and they will kind of plan the meal, and they'll put it together. My five sisters are amazing cooks. They just absolutely are. But let me tell you my relationship with them. When we have family gatherings and it's time for people to bring meals, so they'll, among my five sisters, they'll say, well, you'll bring this dish, you'll bring this curry, you'll bring that. I bring the pop. Um, That's kind of how I roll. And that's how I actually think I'm an okay cook, but compared to them, I'm nothing. And so when it comes down to like, you know, family gatherings like Good Friday and Easter Sunday, they'll say, well, okay, brother, if you could bring the pop and the plates, because we don't think we can screw that one up. And uh, if you could bring that, that would be fantastic, right? That's kind of my role in, in our family. And surprisingly, I'm okay with that at this point in time, right? Because I just have to pick a pop. I'm, that's, that's easy, right? But now look at Martha, okay? Look at how the look how Luke describes her. She's distracted. Now, if you've ever had company pop in, it can be some daunting to kind of prepare yourselves for them, right? Jesus and his disciples and anyone else who might be with him have just shown up, and so Martha's like, okay, like Jesus is not texting her ahead of time, be there in like a half hour, be there in a day type thing. It's just he shows up. And of course, Martha, being the good host that she is, uh, goes into the kitchen and starts getting preparations made. But Luke says, not that she's diligent, not that she's faithful, but Luke says she's distracted. Now, look what he goes on to say, right? Lord, don't you care? See, what's interesting about this is that we have seen Martha in many different ways. But what Martha is actually saying to Jesus is, Jesus, don't you care about me? I'm in the kitchen with my servants trying to get ready for you and your 
loser disciples who just popped up unannounced. You know, I'm trying to get the good hummus and the pita breads and, and whatever else, Middle Eastern, you know, whatever they would have. They're putting that together, right? And there's Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. So she comes in. She sees her sister. I would, I would, I would say to you her youngest sibling, Martha being the oldest, Lazarus being the middle child, and then uh, Mary being the youngest. She sees her youngest sister sitting there. Now, um, again, as I have had old, my, my older sisters, um, there has always been this, uh, you know, uh, my oldest, oldest sister, uh, her, her name is Veronica, and uh, my mom has passed away many years ago, and so she's kind of, I would say she's the matriarch of the family, but basically Veronica says jump, we all say how high, and uh, nobody, like, we don't mess with Veronica, she's, she's clearly in charge, and uh, although some of my sisters will get delusions of grandeur, we all kind of default towards my sister Veronica. Uh, what's interesting is sometimes, you know, my uh, sisters will be in the kitchen working, and if one of them will have escaped or wandered to maybe get, you know, be sociable and talk to people. One of, the, one of my sisters will pop their heads around the corner or I'll say, well, you know, this dish isn't going to take care of itself or that's not going to take care of themselves. Then they'll pop up and head back in and, and, and take care of it. And of course, I brought the pop, so my job is done. So I just get to sit there and just kind of complain that the food's not ready yet. You get the point, right? So Martha comes out, sees her sister, and like, right? And this is something I think we can all relate to. If you have siblings or if you have any, any size of family, this is, this is a comment that, that, you know, it's, it's not unfair. And this is, the, this is the thing with the stories. I think we look at Martha and we see her as kind of like, Martha, relax. But if you've ever had to organize a party or have had to organize people, Martha's actually correct. Mary should be in the kitchen with her, not out here just sitting there doing nothing. And so look at this, what she says, you know, she's left me to do the work by myself. Now, what's interesting about this is Martha, I would say to you, is a representation of Jewish culture. Now, how does the Jewish people, how do, they, how do the Israelites understand faith? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, there's something called the, the Shema. Uh, and what this is, this is a declaration, right? You know, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, right? This starts off this passage. But what's interesting is how the Jewish people have understood this passage is hear and do, right? Um, the Israelites were all about actions, behaviors. Yahweh asked of them to do something. So Martha is, I would say to you, a, 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 an absolute accurate definition of how the Jewish people even understood faith. So Martha's in the kitchen and she's working or she's getting preparations made and Mary's out here. But Martha has been taught, as in Mary and all, everyone else, that Yahweh, that, that God expects something from them. Keeping the law of the Torah was very important to the Jews. There were 613 rules that a Jewish person had to obey. And there was a group of people in the culture who made sure that people would obey these, these rules. 613. Now, could you imagine that for a second? Right? 613 ways that you could make God mad at you. 613 ways that you could disappoint God. That's a lot of rules. That, that, like, like that's, that's almost like lawyer level of understanding the law. Right? But that's how the Jewish people understood their relationship with God. Is that they had to do something, had to behave some way, they had to act in a certain way. And if they didn't behave, act that certain way, God became angry. And so Martha understands this. And so her behavior is all about action and doing. And again, like I said to you, I don't think it's inaccurate. But the interesting thing about Luke chapter 10 is there are three accounts given in Luke chapter 10. Now remember, when Luke is writing his gospel, he's arranging these, these accounts, these, these eyewitness interviews that he's had in a certain order. 
right? It's not haphazard. He's not writing it and giving it to his secretary and I put this together in a book, right? He's, he's, he's interviewed, he's brought all these people together, and now he's putting these stories together. Now, the reason why that's important is because Luke chapter 10 has two other accounts before we get to Mary. And these two other accounts are important to understand the conversation between Mary and Martha. So we're going to take a look at uh, these, three, these two other accounts so that we can make sense of Mary's and Martha's account and that we can also kind of make sense of Easter as well too. So in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, it starts off like this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Now, this is really important. Jesus didn't have 12 disciples. He had 72 disciples. We forget that. We know about the 12, but we forget about the 60, right? And so in Luke chapter 10, these 72 people have been with Jesus for a period of time. We don't know how long, but uh, a certain period of time. Uh, one commentator thought maybe about six months to, to a bit longer than that. Um, so we say that they've been enough with Jesus, so they've seen his teaching, they've been with him, so they have a good sense of who he is, right? And Jesus commissions these 72. He says, okay, go. Go to these towns, proclaim the kingdom of God has is, is, is arrived. Go and tell people of what's going to happen. And he, he gives them instructions, right? So they go out, the 72, pair by pairs, go out, they, they proclaim the gospel, they proclaim about what's going on, and then they come back. And look at verse 23 and 24. This is what Jesus says. Blessed are the eyes that see what you, have, you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Now, what's he saying to them? That you know that thing called the Old Testament where you had David and Ezekiel and Isaiah and these prophets and these kings? They all wanted to witness what you've just witnessed. Because what you have just accomplished is the beginning of a new understanding of, of, of a relationship with God. So Jesus is excited. And they come back and they're like, we did some amazing things. And, and Jesus is excited. Matter of fact, he's so excited that this is what the Bible says about uh, in verse 21. And that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. He's excited. Jesus is genuinely excited that these 72 individuals have understood at some level what the kingdom of God was all about and the message that Jesus had. But that's not the rest of the story, is it? Because at some point in time, these 72 go from 72 to 12. And we see when this happens, actually, because John's gospel records it and gives us an insight into this. In John chapter 6, verses 61 and 66, we see this part here, right? So Jesus has just taught, as he always does, and he says something, I would say to you, a little controversial. He says to the people, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. Now, to the Hebrew person, it's like, cannibalism? Ew. Like, like, we did not sign on for that, Rabbi. We signed on for this, but we did not sign for that. And look what Jesus says to them in verse 61. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Are you offended by what I just said? Right? Now look what verse 66 says. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. 72 to 60. Jesus wasn't a fan of the church growth movement. Because in every respect, he was a bit of a failure in regards to discipleship, right? He goes from 72 to 12, right? Now, this is important, right? Because the 60, the 72, 
all of them have gone out and seen the power of God. They've seen what Jesus can do. They've seen the kingdom of heaven. But for some reason, this wasn't enough for them. You know what I think is is so amazing, and I've mentioned this before, is that Jesus was, uh, we look back on Jesus, we go, okay, we get a little bit about Jesus, but imagine being in the first century, hearing about this rabbi, okay? So Jesus first is a rabbi. He didn't go through a rabbinical school. He just shows up and starts teaching. So he circumvents the authority structure of that time, and he starts teaching. But he doesn't just start teaching. He raises people from the dead. He casts demons out of people. Blind people see, have sight. Those who were not able to walk can walk. So this rabbi is above and beyond others. Now imagine for a moment, you hear that this rabbi is going to be in St. Jacob's, Elmira. You get, you get it, right? The country. Something like a little, little further out rule like uh, Linwood. And if you don't know where Linwood is, look it up. It's, it's great, right? So he's out in the country somewhere. And you hear, oh, I've heard about this guy. He does some pretty amazing things. We should go there. And so you walk from here to Linwood, uh, and it takes you a day, maybe a half a day to get out there. And you get there and you arrive, and you arrive there on this field, and there's thousands of people there. There's kids, there's animals, there's individuals, and they're clustering, they're talking like, oh, this Jesus guy, okay, what's going to happen now? What's he going to say? And then all of a sudden, out of the corner of your eye, you see this person walking at the middle of the field, and I was oh, it's Jesus. Jesus gets up and says, hey, everyone, welcome. Um, so this farmer goes out in the field, and you're, you're surrounded by farmer's fields, and he sows seeds and lands on a path. Birds there come, eat it. And he sows more seed on it, it falls on the rocky parts. And the roots grow, but the sun comes out and bakes, they die. And the seed, he throws more seeds out, and it, it, it hits the soil, and it, it bears fruit, but the thorns come up and they choke it out. And finally, he throws seeds, it sounds on good soil, and it bears 30, 60, 100 times the crop. Thanks for, thanks for coming out. Have a great day. Bye. You laugh, but that's exactly what he did. And his disciples are so distraught, they come back to him like, what was that? We had a crowd, Jesus. Let's send the offering plate out. Let's do something. Come on. And Jesus says, I teach so seeing, seeing they may not see, hearing they may not hear. Now, I know you think that's how I teach on a Sunday morning as well, too. But I, I just want you to know something. This is not how you create a movement. You don't talk in riddles or parables. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Why? Because he knew that only the curious, only those who really wanted to know more, would come to Jesus. Like, Jesus, that wasn't a story about farming and, and good farming techniques, is it? No, of course not. Here's what the seed is. Here's what the soils are. And this is how it applies to the kingdom of heaven. Well, to these 60 who, who experienced the power of God, that power was never able to translate into relationship. And when Jesus pushes them, and he always will push them, they're like, I'm out of here. This guy is not worth it. This guy is, is, is teaching some pretty weird stuff. When we get to the next account in, in, um, in uh, uh, John, uh, John, uh, Luke chapter 10, and it's the story of the Good Samaritan, I'm not going to go through the story too much, but I want to point a couple of things out here where the story comes from. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says this, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the emphasis I'm putting there, you'll, you'll understand why in a second. Basically, what is he asking Jesus? How do I earn my salvation, thus ensuring my admittance into heaven? Now, this is actually a fair statement. If you have 613 rules to, to live by, don't you want to know the shortcut? If there are 613 ways you can 
make God angry at you? Is there a way, Rabbi, that I can circumvent all this? Because I'm not sure if I'm going to get to heaven. Because my behavior, my actions, they're not always great. And every one of us in this room, we can, we can identify with that. In your week, in your days, like whatever happens, we're not 100% sure of how good we are. Does God love me? So when he stands up and says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? What do I do? What, how, what can I accomplish? What task can I do? What dragon can I kill? What mountain can I climb? What sea can I go across so that I can finally say, okay, I'm going to heaven. Right? And so Jesus says to him, the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now watch this in verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, right? Justify himself. What does he mean by justify himself? He just means it's, that's too easy. That's too easy, right? So he wants to justify himself. So he asked, who is my neighbor? Now, you know the story, right? Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, the interesting thing about the Good Samaritan story is that there are three individuals in the story. Two of them are Levites. Now, the reason that's important, Levites are the individuals who are going to be trained to be priests. They know the law. They understand Yahweh. And the third person, the hero of the story, is a Samaritan. Look at verse 36 and 37. Which of these do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So the story of the Good Samaritan, if you look at it on, its, on, its, on the surface level of it, what you are seeing is Jesus is saying to the person, here's the actions you must, you must accomplish in order to be good. But what's interesting about the Samaritans were is that they didn't understand God any better than the Levites did. As a matter of fact, Jesus says a couple of times they don't. Do you remember the story of the, good, uh, of the, uh, the woman at the well? She's a Samaritan woman. What does Jesus say to her in John chapter 4? Uh, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem. And what does Jesus say? You Samaritans worship what you do not know. What's he saying? So the Samaritans were Jewish people who centuries before took a turn in a different direction. And the Samaritans separated from the Jewish people, created their own temple, their own religious structure based upon the law of Israel. So they not only knew the law, but they didn't actually have the, uh, the, the, the right way of, of accomplishing their relationship. As a matter of fact, the mountain that Jesus is talking about is a place called Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is the Mount of Blessings. The reason that's important is the Samaritans created their temple on the Mount of Blessings. Why? Because they wanted to incur God's blessings. Where do you want to go to church? We're going to the church Mount of Blessings. Oh, that sounds good. I want blessings. Because you know what was right across from the Mount of Blessings? A mount called Mount Ebal. Mount Ebal is called the Mount of Curses. So on one hand, you have the Mount of Curses. On the one hand, you have the Mount of Blessings. By the way, guess where God asked Israel to build an altar to him? Ebal. Curses. When the Israelites crossed over the Jordan River, they go to Mount Ebal. They build an altar of uncut stones, 12 stones, and they declare the, the law of Deuteronomy. Why? Because God's saying to them something very important. You can't earn my, my blessing. You will never be good enough. You will never be perfect enough. You will never fulfill all the requirements of the law. But the Samaritans go, you know what? Ebal, that's for you Jewish people. We're going to go to the Mount Gerizim. We want the blessings of God. There's some preachers who preach that today too. 
right? Act this way, give this much, and God will bless you. Pray this prayer, and God will bless you, right? Mount Gerizim is Mount of Blessing. But Jesus says about the Samaritan woman, you don't really know God. You know an aspect of God. You want God's blessing, but you don't really want to know him. And as a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is rejected by a village of Samaritans. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and, 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 the, and the disciples are going to go before him to prepare his way. And look at this. And the disciples who went into Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him. So it's interesting to me in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus wants to tell the story of behavior, he uses the Samaritan as the hero of the story. And the reason he uses the Samaritan as the hero of the story is because he's using somebody who doesn't understand God. Now, if you look at Luke chapter 10, and if you look at the 72, and you look at the, six, at the Samaritan, you could take away from that that God only wants you to act and behave a certain way. This is why Luke has to add chapter uh, has to add the story of Luke and uh, Mary and Martha. Because now look what happens, what Jesus responds now to Martha. Martha, Martha. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or only, indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. In the NLT version, I love how, it's, how it puts it. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken from her. Wait, what? There's only one thing worth discovering, knowing? What was Mary doing? Like, what was Mary doing that Jesus said that this is all you need to do? She was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening. She wasn't commentating. She wasn't giving Jesus some pointers on teaching. She was just sitting there going, I just, I just want to learn. I want to hear from this rabbi. And Jesus says to Martha, who's doing a lots of stuff, Mary's discovered what is, what's really important here. If you are concerned about earning God's favor, his love, you will equally be dismayed about your sin. Our actions, positive and negative, distract us from the one good thing, Jesus. Do you know one of the things I hear the most as a pastor? How can God love me? How can God love me when I sin like this, when I behave this way, when I act this way? And I hear this from people who struggle with with even a particular type of sin, whether it's an addiction, whatever it be. They're like, how can God love me? I feel shame. I feel guilt. I I feel God judging me. I feel God's anger towards me because of my behavior. If you look at your actions as saying, okay, God loves me, he doesn't love me. He loves me, he doesn't love me. He loves me, he doesn't love me. You get the point. If that's how you view your relationship with God, the enemy will always slip in and say to you, God doesn't love you. You're not good enough for God to love you. And your actions will begin to become a barrier between you and God. There's some lessons I think we can learn from Luke chapter 10. The 60 experienced the power of Jesus but never crossed over into faith and trust. They had the power of God, but they didn't have a relationship with Jesus. The good Samaritan left by itself leads a listener to believe that behavior is all Jesus requires. Are you the good Samaritan? Are you, are you good enough? And the answer for most of us are really honest. Sometimes, other times, not so much. Does God love me or does not love me? Martha had the Messiah, I mean, the Messiah in her living room, but never saw, never witnessed who he was. If I told you you had Jesus, the creator of all things, in your living room, I'd, I'd just order takeout. 
and call it even. I just want to sit there and ask him, okay, what's up with the platypus? You know, and, 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 and why, like, why, why spiders, really? Like, like, come on. Like, that's, that's the fall, right? That's sin, right? The spiders just like, right, like, and it, you get the idea, right? You want to have a conversation with this individual rather than being in the kitchen working for him. Um, one of the things we have to understand about religion, one of the things we have to understand about the law is, what do we think God wants from us? If I was to ask you, what do you think God wants from you? We don't have to ask this question because we know the answer because Jesus time and time again says it. In Matthew 23, 27 to 28, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, but he's just talking to those who use religion or law as this kind of covering for what's really dark and, and, and ugly on the inside of them. He says, listen, you're whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, dead on the inside. And again, in uh, Matthew 15, who's qu- he's quoting Isaiah chapter 29. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, but their teachings are what? Merely human. I love that phrase, merely human. When we apply the law to our lives, when we think that God just has religious behavior for us, we are acting merely human. And when we act merely human, we allow the enemy to speak to us in human terms about our faith and who we are. And Jesus and God is trying to tell us, listen, I know, I know who you are. I know what you hide inside, right? Easter is a radical transformation of the requirements of faith. God moves past our hard outer shell of behavior to wrestle with our darkness that we hide within. Why does Jesus say time and time again, especially in the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, If you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her. That's a very uncomfortable statement. If you are angry with your brother, you've committed murder. That's an uncomfortable statement. See, Jesus was trying to teach the Jewish people something. You've created these 613 rules as a hard outer shell. But the inside of you is far from God. He answered, this is again, Jesus speaking to the, to the, uh, to the Pharisee, the, the religious leader. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Belief must precede behavior. But behavior is a reflection of belief. That's going to twist your noodle a little bit when you think about it. Right? If you go behavior first, you act rightly, but you think you, 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 you actually have this insecurity about your relationship with God. Belief must precede behavior. But your behavior is a reflection of what you believe. It's a tension that Easter holds together quite nicely. Because it's one thing to say God loves me. It's another to see Jesus hanging on the cross to understand God really loves me. He, he really loves me. This act, this thing that took place thousands of years ago of God himself coming to walk amongst us to endure the humiliation of the cross. God really loves me. God really loves me. I love how Tim Keller says it. Or Timothy Keller, but we're friends, so you get the idea. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. And yet... At the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. These are the two tensions that Easter holds, and this is the tension of Martha. Martha is behaving and acting 
in a way that she's hoping to get God's favor, Jesus' favor. But remember I said to you, there's a tale of two Marthas. Martha doesn't say this way, and this is the problem. We forget that Martha actually has a transformation experience. And we see Martha again at the burial of Lazarus. When Jesus doesn't get there in time, and we're going to unpack this a little further on and a little later on, look what Jesus says. Jesus has a conversation with Martha, and look at the transformation of Martha's life. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. What's that, Martha? Is that a kernel of faith now in you? Is that, is that something that's growing inside of you? Now look what Jesus says to her in verse 26. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Look at, look at Martha's response. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. We remember Martha as saying to Jesus, Mary's not helping me. And we can look at Mary as, uh, we can look at Martha as being the older, kind of like responsible, kind of maybe harder on her shell. But a couple of years later, Martha's going to have a conversation with Jesus. And remember, go into this moment. Lazarus has not walked out of the tomb yet. Martha doesn't know that Jesus is going to do this. Right? We have to stop going to the end of the story to know the story. Martha is just declaring to Jesus something very important here. She says, I just believe. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. My brother is dead and I really wish you would have gotten here earlier. But apart from that, I believe in who you are. Easter, today, my prayer for each of you is not that you approach Easter going, I'm not good enough. Or this is what defines me. This sin is what defines me. This mistake that I made, this fallenness that I have, this is what defines me. Martha is in the kitchen. Martha is preparing all these things. And all the Bible says about her, she's distracted. Because Mary has found her way to Jesus' feet. And she has done something that Jesus says, only one thing is needed. Are you sure, Jesus? Because my Bible tells me there's 613 things that are needed. And Jesus says to Mary, Sister Martha, only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what that one thing is. Martha's story is the outer layer of understanding Easter. When you approach the cross, you bring nothing with you. Your good deeds, your bad deeds, these are all irrelevant before the cross. Jesus didn't walk to the cross with his disciples walking around uh, helping him. They had fled at this point in time. The cross represents the fulfilled work of what God wants to do in our lives. And today, right now, right here, Jesus wants our belief. He just wants us to declare, you are God. Remember last Sunday we talked about our prayer, right before our prayer time, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, uh, protocol? I don't know if I can use that word. Our God is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, he is still God and we will worship him. Martha is saying to Jesus, you are the Savior. You are the Messiah. And even if you don't raise Lazarus from the dead, you are still God, and I will still worship you. I will choose the one good thing, and that's you, Jesus.
You are the good thing in my life. When my life falls apart, you are the good thing. When my spouse uh, uh, disappoints me or, or, or distracts me, you are the good thing. When my siblings do that, when my friends do that, when all that does that, Jesus, you are my one good thing. You are my one good thing, and I will just sit at your feet. Broken, falling apart, I will sit at your feet, and I will listen to you, because that's what you require of me. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you see us and you love us. We are more broken than we even can imagine, but we are more loved than we ever dared hope. Easter is all about hope. Easter is the truth that comes into a lost and dying world and says there is something more. Easter speaks to our brokenness, to our sinfulness, to the darkness that we hide from everyone else. And Easter declares the one good thing, and that is Jesus. And sometimes the circumstances of our lives don't change. And sometimes we continue to struggle with the sin, the addictions, whatever it would be. We still struggle. But Holy Spirit, I pray you would bring us to Jesus' feet, where we would sit at our Savior's feet and just listen. And just hear the one good thing, and that is Jesus. Lord, for anybody in this room who feels guilt or shame or whatever it would be, lack, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would feel that. You would heal that. Forgive us for listening to the voice of the accuser that tells us, did God really say? Did God really say he would love you? Did God really say he would forgive you time and time and time again? I thank you, Lord. The answer to that is always yes. Your love is transcendent. Your love goes beyond our understanding. Your love, your love heals us, restores us, redeems us. And that's what Easter is. And I thank you, God, that Martha found a belief in you, found faith in you. When she lost her brother, when her life was falling apart, she still believed in you. Not what you did for her, but what, what you were to her. And I pray that Martha's declaration would be ours this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.